Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you through his word. We trust that in seeing him, you will be moved to take your next step in loving God and loving others. If there's any way we can serve you, please reach out through mountainside.online. Well, this is the second message in a three-part series on the offices of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Lyle spoke on Christ the King. This morning, we're going to look at Christ the High Priest, and next week, uh, Christ the Prophet. I love to teach on the subject of Jesus as our High Priest. I love to use the tabernacle to uh, talk about what Jesus was doing on the cross. You, uh, you may remember last year, the year before, around Easter, that was a message. When I went to the Philippines, then I could pull out those messages that I enjoyed preaching, but can't preach them again for a while here and uh, preach through the tabernacle and what Jesus was doing on the cross in the church. And so the, the text this morning is going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, and it's been seven years since we went through Hebrews. Hard to believe that, but uh, 2016 is what I had in my notes as when we went through uh, Hebrews. The title of high priest is rooted in the Old Testament. Um, God desired to dwell with the nation Israel. The word tabernacle actually has the idea of dwelling. It's a dwelling place. But because of his holiness, sinful people had to be protected from him. Uh, to be in his presence would mean death for anyone. So God's manifest presence had to be protected. And this is what's confusing at times is that God is everywhere, but there are times where he makes his presence known in a specific location different than everywhere else. Uh, when Moses was standing at the burning bush, he was told, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. And so the manifest presence of God is where he has chosen uh, in the Old Testament, for example, to say, this is where I am, and that is different than the where I am everywhere else. It's tough to describe without using the same words for both locations. And so God was going to dwell in this tabernacle, this dwelling place, and there would be priests, the priests from the tribe of Levi, that would service the tabernacle and be the go-between between the people and the presence of God. Uh, the, the priests did not inherit land. The Levites, they had, instead of land as being their inheritance, their inheritance was God. And so the priest was the go-between. And so we have this tabernacle. And around the tabernacle was a, a wall, so to speak. And the, so inside the wall was the courtyard. And the average, the typical um, worshiper could go into the courtyard but inside the courtyard was a building, and that building had two rooms. And the inner room, uh, the first room that you would walk into would be the holy place. And on the inside of the holy place, going through another curtain, would be the holy of holies. You can throw up that next slide. I know I'm not there in my notes. but uh, And so people like us, none of us are priests, could only go into the courtyard. Only a priest could enter that holy place, and they went in regularly to uh, maintain it, to make sure the showbread was 
fresh to make sure the incense was rising, to make sure that the lampstand was lit and burning. But no priest could go into the Holy of Holies except one priest, the high priest, one day a year. And he would go into where the manifest presence of God was with blood for himself and then for the nations. There were multiple sacrifices, and so you would bring to that altar uh, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass, guilt offerings, and the worshiper, each, each was regulated in a different way. Some would, the, the sacrifice meat would be used for banquets, some of it would be used to feed the uh, priests, um, but it was innocent blood, it was a carefully chosen, perfect lamb, it was the best lamb from your herd, not the worst one as we would maybe want to give, but we were to give God the very best. In a sense, we were staking the future of our herd on God's provision because we were taking the best lamb would represent the best future for our herd and taking it to be killed. The fact that none of us could go in, so many famous people in the Bible could not walk into that holy place. Daniel couldn't walk in. Moses couldn't walk in. David couldn't walk in. Only the priest, only following the prescribed procedure of the Lord. Imagine that one day of the year, that day of atonement, when the nation would be waiting for the priest to take in that blood, that day of atonement, and he would take the blood into the presence of the Lord, and you recognized that God had accepted it, and you would wait another year for for that to take place. So this is the the historical context. This is what would be in the mind of the reader of Hebrews. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to have each verse. We're going to work through Hebrews chapter 12 uh, and then work forward in that. So Hebrews chapter 12 um, says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And so we, we speak of this, the word of God as being alive, as being powerful. It's different than any other book, right? We see lives changed because of it. It's amazing to watch somebody surrender to the teaching of the word and to see their life changed. Uh, one of the challenges that uh, many of you have in being a student at the Bible Institute or, or a pastor, somebody in full-time ministry, is to approach the Word of God merely as an academic, um, from an academic position, just to learn about the Word. And that's important. I mean, uh, we need to know the Word, but we also need to be sure that we're coming to the Word to change us, to know God. And so we need to always be having a gut check that our life is not just an intellectual exercise or a curiosity about the word. I, I loved my year at the BI. I still have my notes. Um, pages haven't turned brown yet, but uh, um, it's been a long time. And every once in a while I pull them out and just, just go over them just to remember uh, what a wonderful experience it was to spend a year studying the word. 
it's so sharp, it cuts between soul and spirit. And I'm not going to work through the, the idea of defining those, but that's a, that's a tough division in the re- revealed word of God. We're talking about the point of this is just the depth. And then comes this very personal phrase that exposes my innermost thoughts and desires. You know, we can judge each other's actions, right? I mean, if you steal something, I know you stole something. But we really don't know each other's innermost thoughts. It's, it's pretty terrifying to think about. You may remember a few weeks back when Pastor Lyle spoke on marriage and had that uh, picture of the iceberg. And it represented the truth about who I am. And above the waterline was what everybody can see. And so you see things about me uh, as you encounter me in church or outside of church. But below the water surface are those things that aren't necessarily obvious. My wife knows more below the surface. surface. And Pastor Lyle's challenge was uh, that we need to be revealing more about ourselves. It's one of the secrets, so to speak, of recovery is to be transparent with another person, to reveal the true person of who I am. That's the idea of discipleship and community. James has to confess our sins, confess our faults to one another so we may be healed, maybe so that we can be changed. This is down in the area when Jesus was talking about when he said, Uh, You have heard it said, I'm going to say more about this next week, you've heard it said don't commit murder, but I'm going to tell you that it's not just about the act of committing murder, but it's the heart that hates. Don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you it's the heart that lusts. See, these are the thoughts, and there's a certain level that we have a hard time even admitting to ourselves, let alone tell anybody about the thoughts that we have had. Intentions is a different kind of word that's maybe even more troubling because you can do good things with the wrong motives. I ask myself this question from time to time. I I serve on the Chamber of Commerce. Do I serve on the Chamber of Commerce because I want people to think I'm a great guy and and involved in the community? Do I do this because I want people to notice? And that's why Jesus said that if you do something to be noticed, it really doesn't mean anything to God. You have your reward that people went, wow, what what a great person he is. And so this passage is saying the word of God goes down and can judge my thoughts and my intentions. And that's terrifying. And so my reaction to that would be fear. There are things I don't want people to know. There are thoughts that I've had that I, I, I don't want people to know. Well, verse 13 actually becomes more terrifying in that we see that nothing in creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Nothing hidden. Everything I've ever done, God has seen. 
every hidden action revealed, every website that we've ever visited, God knows, every video we've ever watched, God knows, every book we've read, every blog we've read, every look that we've taken when we thought no one was watching, God is watching. All of my thoughts exposed by the word in verse 12, but now we're seeing that God fully knows them. I find this to be exhausting, that my embarrassing thoughts are discerned by God. My wicked and evil intentions are known by God, that every action is seen. But that's not where verse 13 ends. It goes one step further, and it says, I'm accountable to God for those. The things I have done, the thoughts my mind has pondered, the motivations that drive my actions and thoughts, I am accountable to God for those. Paul says in Romans 7, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good, the trouble is with me. For I am too human, all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, that shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin that dwells in me, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, and I do it anyway. A few verses later, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? We're going to see in a, in a moment that this passage is going to give us a clue as to, as to how to hope. But when we come to the end of verse 13, our reaction is shame and fear. Not only... Am I fully aware of my actions, my thoughts, and my motivations? But God's aware. Not only is God aware, I'm accountable to him. So then we're given two truths. Verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. And this picture here, then, is of Jesus entering into that holy place as our high priest. And so the fact number one is that uh, we have a high priest. And number two, we're told to hold fast. And he's going to give us some things to hold fast, but to, to hold to what we know to be true. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you know that at least a couple times in the last uh, 18 years, um, I've spoken of the four things I know to be true about God and the four things I know to be true about myself. They're the things that I rehearse when things go south, when life is not working out the way I feel that it should, when I'm discouraged, when I'm sad, when I'm confused, when I'm frustrated, when I don't understand what God is doing. What do I know? And that's the idea here. Hold fast to what you know. It's the idea of the spiritual armor. Paul is giving us these things. Hold fast to your salvation. Hold fast to peace. Hold fast to truth. 
And so my reaction at this point is uncertainty. What is the high priest going to do when he enters into that heavenly place? Now look at verse 15. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. That word weakness is the idea of feebleness, not sinfulness. Christ has no experience in sinfulness, but he understands the weakness. This verse is confusing, isn't it? How does a person who never gave in to temptation understand temptation? We see Jesus being tempted by Satan after he fasted 40 days. We see him hungry. We see him sleeping. We see him tired. We see him in the garden facing the horrors of the cross, that he's facing something that the, the way it's described is this change coming over him and falling to the ground on his face. C.S. Lewis helps us with this idea of what it means to understand temptation by one who has never sinned. This is what he says. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Listen, only those who, true, who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to stand up and walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is the only, the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus knew the depths and the pain we can never know precisely because he did not sin. No human was ever tempted like Jesus was because he himself suffered when he was tempted, but he was able to help those who are being tempted. And so our high priest just doesn't know about resisting intellectually he experienced it in the flesh of saying no, of resisting whatever could be thrown at him. That word sympathize is the idea of a shared experience. When you, uh, you can tune a guitar with a sympathetic tuning where you put one finger on the fret and as you strike the note, it will, the other string, as it experiences the vibration, will sympathize, will start to vibrate. So then you know that you're on the same frequency. It has this idea of coming alongside and experiencing the same. And so my reaction to this is really unexpected. I would not have expected Jesus, the perfect sinless person, to understand what I'm going through. So the final verse of our text is uh, verse 16. So let us come boldly 
to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive this, his mercy, and we will find grace to help when we need it most. This is exactly the opposite of what you would expect. When we read that, that verse a couple verses before where we heard that God knows everything, we would expect an angry, a merciless, a graceless God. Now I'm going to read a number of verses more than I would typically read in a message. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation so it's easy to listen to. And just, just sit back and let the word of God wash over you. Hebrews chapter 9. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship on the earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread on the table, and this room was called the holy place. And there was a curtain. Behind the curtain was a second room called the holy place. In that room were gold incense were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouts leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the divine glory, whose wings stretched over the Ark's cover in the place of atonement. When these things were in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year, and he always offered blood for his sins and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, is not part of the created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and cats. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremony and purity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Chapter 10, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, and they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing for those who came to worship, um, then the sacrifice would have stopped for the worshiper would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said, 
to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings of sin. Verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. It wasn't a chair in the tabernacle. They never sat down. It was continuous, and Jesus did finish the once and for all sacrifice and sat down. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he said, says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so now in Hebrews 10, just to rehearse the couple, couple of the verses that uh, Brian read. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Christ. For our guilty conscience, oh, I'm sorry, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty conscience has been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. When we finished verses 12 and 13, we recognize that not only our actions, but our thoughts and intentions are exposed by the word. And then we learned in the next verse that no creature is hidden from God's sight, and so God sees us naked and exposed to the eyes of him. And then we find out that we're accountable for our actions, that God knows everything I've done, everything you and I have ever said, ever thought, and every single motive. And our first reaction is to be afraid, but Hebrews was written to say to that person, the context is just what we feel at the end of verse 13, that you have a high priest and that he went before you and that he made a once for all sacrifice and now you can go in just like you are and go in boldly. If you're like me, there are times where I actually am embarrassed to pray, to come before God. I think of, of the dogs that I've had in my life, and I say, bad boy. And that dog gets on all fours and starts to crawl towards me like, please take me back. And that's the way we want to enter God's presence. Hebrews says twice, go in, go boldly. not inching forward, come confidently. Now, don't miss this. What is the basis 
of my entering the presence of the Lord. It's the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Verses 12 and 13 remind me that I can't go in on the basis of my good works, no matter how good they are, or I think that they are. This is why I believe the, the self-review at communion is not to see if I'm worthy to take communion as I was taught many, many years ago, but to recognize my unworthiness and that my worthiness is only the blood of Jesus. How does this change everything? That I can get on my knees and come and pray to the Father because I'm coming on the basis of Jesus Christ. That's why we say in Jesus' name, it's, it's a, in a sense a statement that this is not David, the basis of David's perfection. I even hate to even use that word. It's on the basis of Jesus' perfection. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm coming on the basis of Jesus. And so God the Father is inviting us to come to him because once and for all, Jesus has paid the price for my sins. Now, the, the shock is not over. There's, there's something to notice in this verse. After this shocking phrase of come boldly, it's what do we find there? We find grace and mercy. Exactly the opposite of what we would have expected by the end of verse 13. Grace. It says the, the throne of grace or the, the throne of the God of grace. It's the gracious God on the throne that makes the throne gracious. And grace is receiving what I don't deserve. I don't deserve to even be in there. I don't deserve any blessings from God. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve to be a part of a community of believers like you. I don't deserve any of that. That's God's grace. Mercy is not receiving what I do deserve. I do deserve hell. I do deserve punishment. I do deserve that when this sinful person walks in the presence of God, I deserve to fall over dead with terror at finally getting a true glimpse of my sinfulness. Confidently coming into the throne room of God to find grace and mercy. And what is that grace and mercy to do? I will find help when I need it the most. When do I need it the most? What's the context of the, of the text? My thoughts, my actions, my intentions. You know, I mean, sitting right here, if you're paying attention and you've been pouring out your heart to God in worship, that's not when you need it the most. You know, I, I, I was thinking last night, last night the, the whole audience, except for a couple people, were students. And you guys are coming up on Christmas break. And I remember when my family had moved up here two years before I went to the Bible Institute, so when my, that, that uh, break came, I flew back to Cincinnati to visit all my old friends. And there were things that I encountered, opportunities for things that had been so far removed from my life in the three years of living up here, and especially 
the semester at the BI. And I remember just, uh, uh, you know, even having to assess, you know, is it okay to do this or should I, should I avoid that group or whatever? And you're going to face that. That's when you need it the most. We need it the most sometimes when we're by ourselves with our thoughts. When do you need it the most? And God, the, the understanding that our high priest has taken his blood into the holy place, applied it to, the, to God, and God has accepted it once for all, and Jesus sat down for my sin because now I am forgiven. And I come boldly into the throne room and I say, God, I need help. I need grace. I need mercy. And so my reaction is overwhelming gratitude. That's why Paul says, you know, in, in light of the chapter of Romans on grace, should we continue in sin so grace can abound? And it's like, who would be that insane? This is to help us to face temptation. As we come to a close, does anybody here need help? Anyone struggling? Doesn't necessarily mean you're struggling to, to commit some overt sin. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're doubting, whatever it is. The truth of the high priest, Hebrews 4, was written to encourage you to come boldly into the presence of God on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been accepted on your behalf and to come boldly before God and say, I need help. And there you find grace and mercy. We sang a song last night, Let Faith Rise, O Heart Believe. Say the word and I'll believe it. Hebrews 4 is the word. God has said it. We need to believe it. I need it. Do you? Jesus, our high priest, has gone before us. He's made the way. And we are invited by God Almighty as his children, as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, to come into the, his presence and say, God, I need help. And we find grace and mercy to help. Let's pray. Father, I come to you with a feeling that I really have no words to fully express the truths of Hebrews 4, how I feel about the truths of Hebrews 4. God, help me to believe it. Help me to embrace it. Help me to trust it. Help me to make it mine. Help me to run to your presence when I need it most. Help me to run to your presence when I'm ashamed. Help me to run to your presence when I fail. Help me to run to your presence whenever I need it, which is all the time. John wrote in 1 John to, to abide in you, to stay connected. <clears throat> Father, I pray for myself first, 
You know my heart. You know my thoughts. And you know my motivations. And you know how much I need you. And I pray for each person here in this room. And I know that you, in your infinity, and your omniscience, know the very core of each person's heart, what they need, why they need it. And so, God, minister to us, we pray. Give us boldness and confidence, not in our own standing, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.